thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. You're like, okay, I'm going to have all these super cool flying killer robots and I'm going to have an F-35 pilot in the center. Now there's a huge log jam. Every time those automated systems want to do something, they're trying to get through this stupid human who operates at one millionth of the speed. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm Vincent Aiello. This week we're taking a break from video episodes and instead releasing an audio-only discussion on autonomy, automation, and the future of warfare. I know you'll enjoy this stimulating discussion. It features another uber-smart guest and it's conducted by our Fighter Pilot Podcast friend and occasional co-host, Matt Arney. I'll see you next week, but for now, take it away, Flounder. Thanks, Jello. Joining me today is Brad Boyd, retired Army colonel and lecturer at Stanford University. Brad started his career in the Marine Corps, moved over to the Army serving as a capability development liaison in the British Army. I'm sure there's quite a few stories there, as well as stories out of his battalion commander time in the 2nd Battalion, 325th Air Infantry Regiment. He spent some time at Stanford and MIT around his time working in General Milley's staff and the Director of AI-Enabled Joint Warfighting Capability Development at the JAKE, or the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. A little more time in his military career as Defense and Foreign Policy Advisor to Senator King. He's now a lecturer at Stanford University and provides a course on autonomy, automation, and the future of warfare. So, Brad, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Uh, I love what you guys are doing with the show, and uh, I can't wait to make some sort of small contribution. So really excited. Thank you. No, that's great. I've enjoyed getting to know you this last year, and uh, I'm really excited about what you're going to bring. Before we get into that content, Marine Corps, Army, um, all kinds of stuff to unpack there. But in a short period of time, how'd you get commissioned and what, what did that career look like? Yeah, so I'm I'm a bit of a bizarro guy. Um, I actually enlisted in the Marines when I was 17 out of high school, um, went to college, did time in the reserves, and I got commissioned in the Marine Corps aboard the USS Carl Vincent, no less, in 1996. And then I did another six years as a Marine officer up through about 9-11. And I just, I love the Marine Corps. I love the Marines, uh, but I kind of needed a change. I wanted to do some different stuff. And the Army was like, hey, we will let you do some different stuff. So I actually did an inter-service transfer. So I don't have any broken time. I literally, one day I was in the Marine Corps, I raised my hand and poof, I was in the army. And then I spent the next 19 years in the army, uh, mostly serving out of brag in airborne units and so forth, and got a few opportunities to obviously go overseas like most of my cohort, which is not unusual for officers of my age. So lots of time in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and other places. But then uh, as I started to get a little more senior, I got the opportunity to branch out a little bit, which was one of the reasons why I wanted to be in the Army as opposed to the Marines, is there just all these little opportunities to do a lot of crazy weird stuff. So I went to Stanford and did a fellowship there, studied some technology things, cyber, AI-enabled information operations mostly. So when I went to work for General Milley, I had this really unusual background in sort of technology that he found attractive when you mix it. There's a lot of people that know technology, but there's not a lot of infantrymen in the army that know a little bit about technology. So he found that compelling. I worked for him a little while. And then immediately after that, I went to work at the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center where my real sort of knowledge started to get refined. You know, as soon as you drop into a place like that with people that actually know what they're talking about, you have to learn very quickly or be destroyed kind of thing, right? Because they're throwing stuff out that you've never heard of before and you got to, you're, you're running immediately to catch up, especially when you're ostensibly in charge and you're trying to figure out how to get programs fielded with a technology that, you know, is is somewhat emerging, although based on a lot of technologies that have come before it. 
so doing that and hopefully doing it well, eventually you create this little niche for yourself and off you go and you start uh, talking about issues that range from there. So I went from sort of AI technology to start really getting into automation and autonomy because that's really the capability that we're talking about going forward and where I think the future of warfare and a lot of people think the future of warfare is ultimately leading to. Yeah. Fascinating path, you know, and leave it to an army guy to ground us in the future of, of warfare. <laughs> this, this is going to be good. Quick question on that background. 1996, you were commissioned in the Marine Corps on the Carl Vinson. Were you uh, a Mardet guy back then or what were you? No, doing? I wasn't. Um, I had a relationship with the ship and um, they invited me to to come get my commission there because of my enlisted time and so forth. But no, I was not on the Mardet. As a matter of fact, I think by that time, the Mardet had left the ship. When the nuclear weapons left the ship, the Mardets were sort of like, what are we still doing here? So I think it was either General Mundy or General Krulak who finally got rid of the Mardets off the ships. So. Fun little aside for another uh, yeah, story yeah. over there, but, uh, but that's great. So I really appreciate you bringing us to the future of warfare. And, and again, you know, we're going to focus on air warfare, but one of the things I, I really am going to look forward to your perspective, you know, you, you were uh, air infantry regiment in the 82nd airborne, right? Yeah. Where you served. So you got a lot of great experience and working with air assets, you know, as I did FAC A work in the F-14 and the F-18. I always knew that my customer was that soldier, that Marine who needed that support. And so as we look at the future of warfare and the future of air warfare, listeners can go back to episode 149, where I had Pink Floyd on talking about the future of air warfare. We kind of broadly talked about it and the capabilities of aircraft there. Episode 139, Ken Katz had a great conversation with Colonel Randall Gordon on AI and military aviation which was really good and kind of defining AI and autonomy a little bit and talking more about kind of present day. So back to your experience and my experience, you know, as I, I look at those 2040s and that battlefield, we're going to have seaborne vehicles, airborne vehicles, ground elements, and we can envision a world that it's maybe not starship troopers on another planet, but for contemporary folk, I mean, it's, it can be quite futuristic. So with that mindset, what is automation and autonomy? How do we look at those in this conversation? What's your perspective on how those concepts apply to the future of air warfare? And that's the rub. First off, your, the episode that you guys did with, I think Lazarus was his call sign, um, talking about AI in general. Number one, I thought that was really good. He had a very sort of grounded way of looking at the technology And so I I encourage everyone to, I'll I'll pivot off of some of the things that he said. So I'll make assumptions that people are going to listen to that and move forward. When you talk about autonomy and automation, I look at those as the capability, okay? AI is a technology. So what you need is technology to create capability. And I think that's an important thing to remember. So you don't get autonomy or automation from one technology either, right? There's a lot of different things. There's hardware technology. All these things have to come together along with software to realize a meaningful version of automation or autonomy. And so the next thing comes in is, well, what's the difference? What is automation and what is autonomy? And I will tell you that, frankly, nobody can agree. So if I tell you, well, here's, here's what I think automation is, here's what I think autonomy is, you're going to find people who disagree with that. And I think if you look at most of the literature, especially arms control literature, where people are trying to regulate autonomous and automated systems, no one can agree what to regulate because nobody can agree on the definition. But let me give you something to work with. Generally speaking, something that's automated simply performs a human task, right? So the human doesn't have to do it. And that can be something as simple as, you know, the the simplest machine, like a car, you know, a car has a lot of automatic features for you uh, that you don't have to do yourself, or you can call a, a blender, you know, automates the process of mixing up stuff, something as simple as that. So if we think about it, it's like human wants a task to be done while he or she doesn't have to do it himself or herself. Automation. So what is, where does it automation become autonomy? And that's the really hard question. So a lot of people will describe autonomy as, hey, it's just really complex automation, meaning it's doing a lot of different stuff 
in a way a lot faster than humans can maybe keep up with what it's doing. And that definition is okay. And I'll, I'll come back to it in a second. But the way I like to look at it without going into the very, there's like 50 different definitions out there, but let me just, so I start there and let me throw out that way, the way I look at it is task versus intent. So if I say automation is something that accomplishes human tasks, then I would say that autonomy conceptually is something that accomplishes human intent. And there's a lot to unpack there, obviously, right? The problem with just saying that autonomy is something that's really complex for humans is that it implies anthropomorphization, meaning it implies that thinking is going on just because the number of tasks being done is is very complicated. And I think that makes us think that the system is doing things that it is not actually doing. And this is where your your you know Lazarus's answers back before are great about artificial intelligence. It's just computing data. It's not thinking, it's not making decisions, it's just giving you an output, right? So when you start to assign autonomy to something just because it's doing complex output, it gives the illusion that what you're dealing with is intelligence, thought, et cetera, and that makes you make bad decisions about the capability. I'll pause there for a second if you got any comments on that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great kind of scene setting on that. So what are some examples of how you're seeing that autonomy incorporated in emerging platforms. You know, first off, when you talk about air platforms, there's the air war. And then what you were talking about is servicing targets on the ground, especially in the support of ground troops. So let me first say that the complexity, in my opinion, not being a fighter pilot, obviously, but anytime you get things on the ground, the complexity level goes up significantly. So if I want to have a robot move around by itself in the air, that's not that hard, right? I can get a, something to kind of fly around by itself in the air. If I wanted to do it in the water, again, it's challenging, but not that hard. If I wanted to do it in a forest, the complexity of the level just skyrockets, right? So what that means is that I think a lot of the best automation and autonomy projects are occurring at first in the air and, and at sea, right? Whereas the army is going to be struggling to get something meaningful as far as an independent system moving. We're talking, you know, the sort of stereotype of like a discrete system that stands there physically by itself and performs tasks. So when you talk about the Air Force was working on Skyborg for a while, and I know that's kind of gone the way of the dodo, but essentially, you know, the automated systems or as depending on what you want to call it, autonomous systems that work alongside manned fighter systems. Those are probably the most likely systems that you'll see, as well as reconnaissance systems as well, trying to get the uh, the RPA pilots out of there so that the systems can function in a electromagnetically degraded environment. And the same thing at sea, you know, the underwater systems, you're going to see those first so that they can continue to operate in an electromagnetically degraded environment, which essentially means they can't talk to any sort of background station or base station, and they continue to perform their function. Doing that on the ground is is just way, way harder. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting perspective, because I hadn't really thought about that, even though as I think about emerging platforms, we look at the next generation air dominance, FAXX, as a family of systems with, you know, MUMT, the manned-unmanned teaming, where conceivably we'll have folks flying out there with unmanned autonomous vehicles that they're integrating into the battle space. And so, yeah, you're right. Even though it's three-dimensional and there's avoidance that has to take place and, and all these kinds of decision processes that we have to build into that autonomy, they don't have to deal with trees and rocks and terrain and cliffs and all kinds of other stuff. And, you know, one thing I'll point out too, is that, you know, you talk about MUMT, I'm going to take a little fringe view here. Let, let me push myself a little bit farther than I probably would be comfortable with, but it'll be an interesting part of the conversation. When you talk about MUMT and you know you, you have a pilot with autonomous systems, what you're actually doing is you're building in vulnerabilities to the system and you are reducing the goodness that you get out of automated and autonomous systems by introducing a human into the equation. If, if you're like, okay, I'm going to have all these super cool flying killer robots and I'm going to have an F-35 pilot in the center. It's like, yeah, but now there's a huge log jam 
every time those automated systems want to do something, they're trying to get through this stupid human in the back who operates at one millionth of the speed. And while that might be better for the human and the human feels good about it, you're actually sacrificing a lot of sort of speed and flexibility than if you were to have a completely automated or autonomous system. So let me give you an example sort of where this manifests in something that's a day-to-day. Right now, Tesla, Waymo, whoever are trying to build autonomous vehicles to drive on the street, right? It's terrible. Why? Because there's all these humans driving around doing stupid shit all the time. Here, here's an example. Back in the, uh, I, I'm sort of pulling this thread a little bit, but 150 years ago, maybe 130 years ago, streets, look at pictures of streets and cities. There were these huge spaces that had horses walking in them and people playing in them and walking all over the place. And everybody's just kind of doing whatever the hell they want in the street because the horse and carriage was a fairly slow thing, right? You didn't Mm -hmm. care if your kid was playing in the street because it's like a park. It's not a big deal. But when automobiles come on the scene, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, don't go on the street. So what do we do? We, We get these control measures where people get on the sidewalk, cars get in the street. If you're in the street, you're in a danger area, right? So when we're doing it now, now we're bringing autonomous systems in, we still have those people in the way. And so what we need to do, if you're ever going to probably realize vehicle autonomy in the short term on a street, is you got to get the people out of their cars, right? It's got to be like 100% autonomous versus partially autonomous and partially human because humans are just too unpredictable. So if you transition that to a sort of a war fighting discussion, this natural and it's 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 done from a good space but this natural tendency to be like hey we need a human up there the human has to sort of be participating in all this what you're doing is actually creating a lot of difficulties for those autonomous systems to operate now, i'm overstating my case a little bit but it's worthwhile mm-hmm. to sort of consider that interrelationship right no that's a great way of bringing in that thought because i was going to get to this later but let's pull it up now So we get into the ethics of autonomy and policies around. There's people who would hear that argument and say, but wait a minute, you can't have robots just fighting our wars for us. You got to have people involved. So how do we seek the balance between autonomy going out there to do war fighting, but ultimately it's got to be humans in the loop in some kind of decision-making element to make sure the robots aren't running amok and so, so how do we do that? How do we compete with adversaries who may not have the same ethical disposition as us? Yeah, it is a really good sort of series of questions to ask, right? So I'll say that let's start with autonomy again as a concept. First off, autonomy is not new, right? We've had, in my class, I talk about we have human autonomy that's been around since there's been warfare, right? And human autonomy has its own risks associated with it for like, let's say for infantrymen, we love having our soldiers go out. We give them a, basically an intent and they go out and they try to solve the tactical problem. But sometimes, you know what? Sometimes they round up a bunch of civilians and murder them. Right. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of systems in place to deal with that. Uh, A lot of legal systems to assign responsibility, very up and down the chain of command and so forth. When we start getting into machine autonomy, number one, we don't really have all of those systems in place. We have some of them, but we're also not comfortable with the systems in place because we don't have a good way to assign responsibility, or I should say moral responsibility. Legal responsibility is something else. When that infantry guy goes out and murders civilians intentionally, we can say he's responsible. You exceeded the intent of your commander. You weren't following orders. You you departed from your orders, your task, and you started murdering people. So you're responsible for that. Everybody knows that you're not going to hold a robot responsible for deviating from its intent or its task list. So they're very uncomfortable with this idea of who's responsible. But the funny thing is, is when you talk to lawyers, lawyers don't seem to get as uncomfortable with this because lawyers know how to assign responsibility. Non-lawyers have a tendency to think of this as sort of an ethical way, like who's morally responsible. And that's really hard to assign. But anytime, I mean, you're, you're a pilot, you know, if your audience is mostly pilots, 
when an aircraft flops out of the sky, there's a whole investigation and, you know, the pilot might get some responsibility for the airplane crashing, the, the manufacturer might get some responsibility, et cetera. So I, in an autonomous system, it's going to be the same way. Assigning responsibility will be an investigation that says, okay, the engineer did this wrong. The commander employed the system in a way that was outside of its performance parameters. Therefore, he bears some responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. That answer, though, is always very unsatisfying to people, right? They very much want to sort of freak out about autonomous systems going out and, and killing things unintentionally. So who do you see in the policy space out there who is really challenging that? Because uh, I know that's that's a lot of what the outcome of your course is, and it's an interesting element when we look at the future of air warfare. It's nice to just think about the the systems and how wonderful they might be, but there's an important element of the policy side of that. So how's that conversation going? Yeah, I think people are stuck. They're stuck on the concept of autonomy because no one can agree what it means, where it starts and where it ends. And this is something that I've started working on as well. So in my class, this became very apparent as I'm interacting with students and I'm talking to guest lecturers and so forth, it's this sort of like, we can't seem to figure out a way to regulate the development and fielding of autonomous systems because nobody can agree on what autonomy is. So I'm actually working on a piece and I haven't finished it yet, but you know, I'll share it with you and sort of my thought process here. I, I want to abandon this idea of defining autonomy as a way to regulate unwanted outcomes in automated systems. And I think what we, the better way to look at it is through a risk management framework and a risk tolerance framework. So if you've got an automated system or an autonomous system that might go crazy and start killing people like mad, if you're in an existential conflict with China, you might not care, right? You might be willing to employ that system that has a failure rate, if you will, that's a little bit higher than what you'd be comfortable at a, at a lower intensity conflict, right? So really what we're, we end up talking about is what is the probability that this system, if it fails, will lead to an unintended, let's say human death or an unintended uh, destruction of infrastructure or something, some unintended consequence that we don't want it to do? What's the probability of that? And then what's the severity of that? Just a basic sort of risk management framework. But then we can add in with this system, what is the time differential from when a system might begin malfunctioning to when a human operator would be able to essentially deactivate it or get it back inside its parameters and how much destruction or how many unintended consequences would happen before that human was able to intervene. And to me, that's the crux of the matter. This is where everyone constantly comes back on the loop, in the loop, whatever. What we're really talking about is how long does it take a human to intervene to stop unintended consequences? And so the beauty of that framework is that you can actually test for that. So when the testing and evaluation people are taking a capability that's been designed and they test the model, in this case, an AI model, they say, well, it's 90% capable under these circumstances. And under these other circumstances, it's 80% performant. And under these 70% or whatever. So you can start to get a, a documented mathematical justification for, look, this thing is going to fail under these circumstances, this amount of time, and you've designed the system that a human operator will take 30 seconds, five minutes, half an hour before it can intervene. And so you start to be able to give yourself a scenario where it's like, well, I'm not willing to build and field a system that can shoot five nuclear weapons before a human can intervene. And you're like, okay, well, that system, boom, we're not going to, we're not even talking about whether it's automated, autonomous or whatever. We're just saying, well, we don't, definitely don't want one of those. Let's scratch that off the build line. And then you can kind of walk it back. All right, well, now we have an airborne system that if, if it's stormy out, its ability to properly identify enemy targets goes down to 50%. It's like, okay, well, if it misidentifies a target, how much time do I have before it's going to destroy that target? Uh, you're going to have three minutes. Okay, that's acceptable. We just know that we have to have someone there who can intervene in three minutes. And it becomes part of the, the system's performance uh, envelope. And so I think that's the future of regulation is to sort of stop trying to uh, define autonomy and to get towards more of like a performance envelope sort of regulation. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's in, when you talked about that, it brought me back to, you know, the concept of danger close when we're supporting troops. You know, there's certain parameters where we can employ weapons and the further you are from the forward line of troops, the more freedom there is within the rules of engagement. But obviously, as you get closer to the flood or the forward line of troops, you know, then there's certain uh, approvals that have to take place. And then when you get into a danger close situation, which, you know, might be 600 meters or, you know, whatever the theater guidance is on danger close, there's a more decentralization. And so it sounds like that's an interesting way of looking at it. Instead of defining autonomy, we say, well, there's, there's situations where, I mean, let's say you have some autonomous air vehicles out there and there are troops who are in extremis and that's the platform that's there. Let's look at risk tolerance and build that into the system. That's the interesting part when we get into building the system. How do we build that decision capability in the system so that that platform understands what type of allowance it is being granted to its autonomy? Yeah. And I think going back to our earlier discussion, you know, it gives you the ability to sort of be like, hey, we're we're fighting for all the marbles here. You know, you talk about danger close. Well, sometimes you're dropping ordnance on your position. And there's examples of that in military history where it's like, hey, we're not doing any safety boundaries here. You're, you're dropping it right on top of us. We know that we're going to get in our holes. You just drop it on us. And I think mm. the ability to sort of turn up or down the risk dial is going to happen too. You might carve out a box in the air and be like, hey, look, we're in such a bad shape right now that if anything comes in this box in the air, it dies we shoot down an airliner, well, it's the middle of World War III and what the hell are you doing up there in the first place? And and that, and military people get this, right? But a lot of times, you know, policymakers and so forth, they're not comfortable with that sort of dialing up and down of risk management. And and so they prefer to, to go back to the sort of the, the legal framework of let's get a really good definition of autonomy. And then we'll just say that we're not going to do what that really good definition is. Uh, I just, that's probably just not a good it's not a feasible way. And, and I say it's not feasible because they've been working on it for 10 years and they got nothing. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. So speaking of the development of these capabilities and developing you know, risk tolerance into the cap- capability, where, where do you see like the commercial sector playing in development versus kind of the classic defense industry? How do you see those working together or against each other? Or what's that look like? Well, obviously we need them to work together in, in as closely as possible. And that's a whole, that could, that's a whole show in itself, right? When you sort of talk about defense and industry integration, but specifically when we talk about like the technology that goes with autonomy and automation, the civilian sector is going to be the one that builds all the things that we need. Let's say the the models to identify targets, or let's say the hardware to get the, what we call size, weight, and power, the swap of these systems small enough to actually be on smaller platforms that go forward. All that miniaturization, all the excellent model building, that's all going to be done by the civilians. But those models, all that stuff is worthless unless it has the exquisite sensor information that comes from the military, right? So what you have is the civilians that have this great technology and you have the military that has this great data that you can't get it anywhere else because only the military has these types of sensors and the ability to extract signatures from different places. And you got to put those things together. The problem is, is that exquisite data is really, really sensitive. 
So how do you get a commercial company to be able to work with that exquisite data? And I think that's one of our biggest challenges going forward is getting the rules and the infrastructure in place. And, and I mean, physical infrastructure in place to allow civilian companies to work closely with the DOD on the most high priority projects and data. I don't think we've done a good job at solving that yet, but there are a lot of really smart people working on it. That's probably one of the critical things that we need to do. And also the next thing is that we've got to get to a less data intensive model for developing capability right now. You know, Lazarus on his show was just talking about all this data you need to get. It's like, yeah, in some models, you just can't get enough data. There just isn't enough data out there to get the sort of effects that you want. So we have to come up with a way to get to train models with less data or perhaps synthetic data, which has also got a whole lot of problems associated with it. But it's the civilian industry that's going to be pushing the boundaries on how to do that. Yeah, that's that's interesting, especially going well into the future. I mean, when you you mentioned Waymo and Tesla and all these folks that are pursuing autonomous vehicles and how challenging, and that's just on on the streets of San Francisco in the middle of the night or you know whatever they're doing to to box their their risk, and then going well into the future of autonomy on the battlefield on the land component. There's a lot of work that has to happen between the defense industry and all the great work in the commercial sector that's that's coming along. But, you know, it's uh, slower for some and, and too fast for others. But, yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff that's got to come together there. From your seat down there in the uh, California part of the West Coast, I'm up in the Seattle area. As you look at the war in Ukraine, are, are you seeing anything on the autonomy piece in, in the war in Ukraine that's interesting part of this conversation? Yeah, no, well, it is very interesting in so, in so much as what they're doing with unmanned systems. As far as autonomy, I'm not sure we're seeing anything that I would classify as autonomy and certainly not lethal autonomy. I haven't seen anything yet. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I'm just saying that I haven't seen it. No one I know has seen it. The problem with wartime autonomy, and this this is great that you bring this Ukraine thing in because it's sort of like, well, why haven't we? You know, Russia would gladly use lethal autonomous weapons if it thought it could turn the tide. It wouldn't give a damn about killing Ukrainians or whatever, right? So why haven't they? And the answer is because they can't. Autonomous systems are extremely brittle because of the type of technology that's in there. And what I mean that is by AI, right? So if you look at even some civilian examples, you can get a model that's for that can recognize stop signs very well. You can get it to fail just by putting a piece of electrical tape on the stop sign, right? And all of a sudden it's no longer a stop sign. Maybe now it's a yield sign, or maybe it's just not a stop sign, right? You just change it from this is a stop sign to it's not a stop sign, you know, and that's just on the street in broad daylight. Now imagine you're flying overhead uh, of a forest trying to pick out T-72s that are camouflaged, that are from different look angles, different altitudes, and the, you know, air defenses are trying to shoot you down and you can't get, you don't know if that's a Ukrainian T-72 or a Russian T-72. It has no idea. And so the, the tendency is to be like, well, let's just put out a more capable platform, but now your swap is going up, right? Size, weight, and power. So things like the, the Iranian drone that's being used, it doesn't have the swap to have a lot of sophisticated edge computing on it. So to get this, the kind of swap that you need, now you're into a great big airborne platform again. And guess what? There's a whole bunch of patriots and other stuff that wants to shoot that down. Um, and, and so you're, you're in this sort of struggle where it's like, well, I, I could put this thing out there. It's not very performant. It's got a you know one in five chance of shooting my own tanks, especially if it's raining or something or, or those, the sun gets down a little bit farther than its performance parameters. So there's just all of these problems and then, you know, maybe you get through all that and then a Ukrainian puts a giant piece of electrical tape on his turret and now your model is defeated. You've spent, you've got a $60 million platform flying around defeated by $5 worth of electrical tape. Um, and, and I'm exaggerating a little bit there, but not much, you know, all those hard, that hardness of getting, of getting these things integrated into actual warfare is, uh, it just prevents them from being fielded. So I imagine if there was some sort of significant air war going on, you might see something, right? Because it's a lot easier to just maybe do a kamikaze air platform 
because there's not a lot of commercial traffic flying over the Russia-Ukraine border right now, so the Russians might be able to get something. But then it comes down to sort of like, do they have the industrial base still functioning to do it? Yeah, no, that, that's a that's a great um, lesson out of the war in Ukraine, and you know we see stuff coming out of that conflict that is more reminiscent of World War One trench warfare, and uh, um, you know the horrible situation there. As we go a little bit further around the globe and go back to China, uh, what are you seeing as far as Chinese development of autonomy uh, from your seat? Again, I go back to your previous podcast when they were talking about the um, the Chinese having their little quadcopter with a machine gun on it. I mean, that's cool. Uh, it looks scary. Uh, you know, I have no idea whether that thing can actually point at anything useful. And again, you know, what kind of circumstances it has to operate under. But the Chinese are working feverishly to get autonomous capability to counter us in, in a Taiwan scenario, right? And we're working feverishly to do the same thing. I think what you know what we have to think about is both sides are working so hard to come up with autonomous platforms in this scenario is to think again back to the technology. It's very data intensive, right? So that data that is used to train these algorithms, where is it? Are the Chinese stealing it? Are they poisoning it? So it's like, yeah, I got it. They're taking stuff off TikTok and that, you know, okay, that's bad. But what I'm really talking about is really exquisite sensor data. You know, if you want to try to hit an air defense system, you need to know what that air defense system looks like more than just pictures that you get off of a Jane's manual, right? You need to have the electromagnetic signature. You need to have all kinds of stuff to, to hit that thing. Well, that data is somewhere. So who's protecting it and how are we ensuring that we can use the data to develop it without it being poisoned by the Chinese? You know, if they have an S-400 or something and we've got that data and they know we have it and they break in and poison it so that our model is a piece of garbage on day one, that, you know, that's a problem. As far as what they're, you know, what specific systems they're working on, I mean, they're working on the same thing as us. They want to do the exact same things that we do. So whether it's air combat platforms or undersea platforms or space platforms, the idea is a, a general push towards autonomy so that number one, you can function in a electromagnetically degraded environment. And number two, you can execute your warfighting functions at a rate that is at a tempo and a speed that exceeds your enemies. So I, they're looking at that across the spectrum and that includes in command and control systems. But the Again, it's sort of like back to Ukraine. The same problems exist across many different fields, not just sort of uh, unmanned platforms trying to drop bombs. It's the false positives. It's the, um, the model only performing under very specific circumstances and ultimately failing in very weird ways that humans think are dumb, which erodes confidence. It's like your car. You know, the cars, autonomous vehicles are pretty good, but when they do fail... They usually make mistakes that you're like, no human would ever have made that mistake. And so even though it's a pretty good system, you're just like, the system's dumb because I know I know I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have mistaken, you know, a car for a for a cliff or something like that. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So on the military side, it has that we have those same kind of problems. Yeah. Even if that automation in that car saves somebody from a hundred different mistakes, that one mistake is going to erode the confidence in the system, which is uh, which will continue to be a challenge in you know in one of those hurdles in delivering autonomy in the future. I mean, you talked about the making sure that you have good data, and that we've got the commercial and defense industry working together. And it's easy to sit here and think almost twenty years in the future what that battle space might look like, but there's probably hurdles out there that we haven't even thought of yet in delivering autonomy, let alone all the ones that we've already talked about in the conversation. Yeah. And you, you know, you mentioned something where you said, you know, that maybe it saved a hundred lives. I was talking to the chief of testing and evaluation for DOD because a lot of that's what my students say all the time. They're like, well, on average, the machine is better. So we should just eat some of those really weird failures because on average it's better. And I asked her, um, her name is Dr. Jane Pinellas. And I was like, Hey, Jane, is the stuff really better than the humans on average? And she, her response was really interesting. She said that the problem is, is we don't know how good the humans are. 
we don't actually have any real data to baseline against. And I thought that was really interesting. And I extrapolated something from that in that a lot of time we go to the average, the mean, you know, the average human will, will be this good or whatever, but not the best human. If the best humans are outperforming the models, there's going to be a temptation to always have, well, I'd rather have the best human than an average model. Yeah, we, we had a, um, you know, an EF-14 Tomcat. We had an analog flight control system. So it was all bell cranks and rods. And a really good pilot could take that airplane places and fight that airplane uh, in just really miraculous ways. But a really bad pilot could easily get themselves in trouble. And so, and then all the other pilots on the bell curve did well. And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, we brought digital flight control systems. So it was the same bell cranks and, and rods and flight control surfaces, but it was all run through a digital flight control computer. And what that basically did was it took those really top tier pilots and kind of put a limit on them. Mm-hmm. They couldn't really exercise that aircraft to the edge of the envelope like they really wanted to, but it also helped the ones who didn't have that capability. So until we can just manufacture superhumans all the time, you know, it's, it's great when you can capitalize on that superhuman talent, but unfortunately, as much as every fighter pilot wants to believe that they are those superior pilots, there's a lot of them aren't. And so it's like, how do we bring that together? How do we build a system that, you know, that, that cushions the bottom while it still allows that, the human intervention to be able to, you know, do what we need to do. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And this is where the discussion always comes in back to sort of human machine teaming, right? Man to unmanned stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to give a brief, uh, you know, even gave it to the deputy sec def where I, we would talk about sort of like, where's the best fit for this technology uh, to help us uh, automate and create some autonomy. And I used to draw, we were talking specifically about command and control, and I used to draw a picture on the whiteboard and I'd say, okay, here's your commander and he's in the center. I'm like, and around him, you have like your J2, your J3, you know, all his sort of staff. And then around them, there's assistants and around them, there's like supernumeraries or whatever. And you finally you get all the way out to the edge of this big layer of circles. And there's like some private there taking notes, listening to a radio, right? Or, or maybe it's even just a sensor. And I was like, so if you look at this very outer edge, I'm like, right now with the technology, we can probably automate that, right? We can turn that radio operator into not a person so that voice recognition and uh, speech to technology just listens to thousands of radio networks, brings in all the stuff, turns it into text in a data stream, and then highlights things for the next line of reasoning to say, hey, look at this, as opposed to having to look at everything. So what you have is like at the very edge of the circles is a lot of process and at the very inside of the circles is a lot of reasoning. And so what we end up doing is say, okay, well, the technology where it's at right now is really good at process. So let's focus building capability that does process and keep the reasoning for the humans. And then as the technology improves, we might be able to start transferring some of the basic reasoning skills again, to the automated system. And then we just sort of slowly eat our way towards the center of the circle where eventually at some point you meet where it's like you have this team of man and machine that are becoming something greater than, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's uh, interesting. Cause I reflect on, we went from, you know, for example, a lot of multi-place cockpits, trying to process a lot of information with multiple people. And now we're predominantly single seat cockpits and processing more information with more systems at their disposal, more weapons at their disposal. And as we look 20 years in the future, it'll be single seat cockpits with not only all the systems and information in their own cockpit, but then with man-on-man teaming with uh, additional platforms out there that are responsible for. So yeah, that's a, that's an interesting whiteboard way of eating your way into the the center from the outside and kind of envisioning where we are in that process and, and where it might go. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned the cockpit because that's one of the first places that we um, started trying to put this speech to text stuff, right? So that the pilots could have 
when you know you're listening to stuff coming over the radio or what have you that it would just go straight into your box inside the aircraft right so it's like map coordinates it would pick out the grid or whatever inside so you're not having to try and type in the grid yourself or god forbid write it on a kneeboard or something you know it would just go straight in now now there's some trust there right you're like well did the machine get the grid right because if i'm going to drop this ordinance and there's dudes down there i want to make sure the grid is right so there's some stuff there and then eventually we were trying to make it so that it would help you prioritize right this and we were doing this for the navy i I don't know if the project's still going but you know you you get it so that the the data is going speech to text straight in the box then it sort of gives you some priorities hey do you want to shoot the nearest target or do you want to shoot the most urgent target or whatever and it gives you some some ways to kind of prioritize that on the screen in front of you and yeah i think that that's something that can be done but everybody wants to jump straight to skynet right and that's just like yeah that's probably a few years away <laughs> yeah but that's that's really great when you bring uh, link 16 or jteds into the cockpit you got four radios plus your 2c cockpit and ics between you and the pilot speech to text would be a great way to highlight something that you might have missed on a radio that was important or something like that you know because with nine lines in my time we ended up incorporating like digital nine lines and stuff like that because you also want to make sure that our warfighters are prepared for a, uh, a scenario where communication is degraded. So if you can get those data bursts out and that kind of stuff, but that's, that's really great work. And that was at the Jake, you did that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that project's been turned over because the Jake kind of is, is, it turned into CDAO. So I, somebody in the Navy was working at that project out at, uh, Fallon, I believe, but, uh, yeah, it's good. And you know, the, um, the, the next logical step, of course, is like you talked about with sort of pencil beaming data back and forth, is all of those aircraft should be talking, right? So as you're putting in information, you're a sensor, your aircraft is a sensor, it should all be talk, sending that information all over the place. And this is the concept behind, you know, the new command and control automation is that your aircraft should be making decisions with you in the decision cycle process on stuff that other aircraft are seeing so maybe you're about to hit a target but you know the collective the borg if you will decides that hey if we put three aircraft over on this target and then it just provides you with a menu hey do you want to divert to this target there's a high priority thing over here maybe you can do that and it's all happening much much faster you know that's probably the next 10 years the idea of just sort of like completely robot systems flying around is probably a little bit farther out but uh, that kind of stuff is probably in the next 10 years well, you know, part of our demographics in this this show are folks who are approaching the time where you know they they want to they aspire to be pilots, and that's part of their future. Is how is all this going to weave together into their career path? So, you know, I I really enjoy bringing people on like yourself who can give them some insight on what the the future might hold in, in their profession in the military. Part of me is jealous of those younger folks and what the future holds. And part of me is like, I'm glad I'm leaving it to them. Yeah. I mean, there's some, you know, the sort of the brave man in his flying machine with his scarf. I'm not sure we're going to see that for the next decades. Uh, and then, and I'm sure we'll all miss that. I know Top Gun Maverick was, is probably my favorite movie of the year. You know, who, who can't get behind all that stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. That's great. You know, and you mentioned Lazarus uh, in the episode 139 there. One of the things I really liked with his talk about automation was, you know, when people are comfortable getting into an airliner that has no pilots in it, you know, then then we're at a point where we as society have adopted this. You know, if you were airborne infantry and you spent a lot of time on the ground. How do you feel about platforms with no people in them actually coming to, uh, to service targets uh, that you need? Yeah, um, I'm probably not a good representative, but I'm all for it. I think a lot of people would be a little bit more, you know, hesitant than me, but I'm willing to assume a certain amount of risk. You know, obviously it's like, well, hey, 50-50, it blows you up. Okay, well, I don't want one of those. But I mean, if you're talking about a a platform that can now loiter for a very, very long time, you know, as this is why the B1s were great, right? They could fly around all day up there. And, and it, you know, with many different ordinance options and it just kind of flies around and does what I need it to do. And I can just burst transmission to it what I want. And there's not a 30 minutes of discussion or, or whatever. It just kind of happens. Then, uh, you know, I, I'm all for it. 
but I don't anthropomorphize these things, right? I just see it as a machine and I know that occasionally the machine is going to go wrong and I don't want it to. But I also know that if I'm trying to win, I need that speed and I need that autonomy uh, and I need that resilience to win the battle. And, I, you know, it's a trade-off, right? Yeah. And through the development process and then once things are fielded through the whole training process, hopefully we'll build the confidence of those ground commanders so that those platforms are going to do what they need to do. And, and like you said a long time ago in our conversation, there's certainly people out there that make mistakes too. So. Great, really uh, interesting conversation. I appreciate having you on, Brad. Uh, so like I mentioned, you're down in uh, Stanford as a lecturer. So give us a little more on what you're doing now and what the future holds for you. Yeah. So I I teach at Stanford and I'm redoing my course again for, for this spring. And I write some things and do my own podcast on some of these topics as well. So if uh, Anybody wants to sort of double click and go a little bit further, you can check my webpage on the Hoover Institution, you know, just Google Brad Boyd Hoover and it'll come right up and you can see some of the stuff I'm working on. And one of the the key things that I'm trying to build is, like I say, is that framework of, hey, let's abandon trying to define autonomy and let's look at regulating these systems in, in a different way that might be a little bit more acceptable to a broader audience just because everything's so stalled in the international community right now. And I'm not trying to stop them in a way like, hey, we shouldn't have automated systems shooting stuff. I, I think that we definitely will and we probably should just because, you know, the other side's going to do it too. And that's kind of a crappy answer. But uh, what I always tell my students at the beginning of my class, and I don't advocate for a particular position, but at the beginning of the class, I always say, hey, look, I don't think warfare is going anywhere. Humans are not going to stop trying to kill each other. So I'm going to assume in this class that warfare is going to continue. And I'm also going to assume that winning a war is preferable to losing a war. So if that sort of basic framework, we can kind of depart and talk about these things. And that seems to be, you know, most of the kids get that. And yeah. I'll tell you what, you know, if if my kids choose to go in the military and if they're up against a adversary who has autonomous vehicles that are shooting stuff and we don't have that, I'll be pretty upset. Yeah, and we're just getting hosed because we're we're trying to fight World War Two, and they're trying to fight World War Three. And obviously, we don't want to do any of it. But it's like Winston Churchill said, you know, it would be a pity to be wrong about peace breaking out all over, uh, as the cost is very high if you're wrong. Yeah, exactly. Brad, it's been great having you on. I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, I hope our listeners do as well. So. Uh, appreciate what you're doing there, you know, getting people to think in an informed way about the future of warfare. And so, yeah, all the best to you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Really enjoy it. Take care. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.